Hello and welcome to The Stack. For this week's show, I speak with Sarah Anderman, founder of the iconic store Colette in Paris and now publisher of Just an Idea Books. We talk about her new exhibition, Le Bon Marché Rive Gauche. We also look at the future of Paris Match and a fascinating book looking at the political importance of the Pet Shop Boys. Enjoy the show. From Midori Housing, London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show in Paris, talking to Sarah Anderman, the founder of concept store Colette, and also publisher of Just an Idea Books. She just opened a wonderful new exhibition at department store Le Bon Marché Rive Gauche in Paris, which I love, and it is a celebration of bookstores and everything related to books, with products from over a hundred different brands, from Paul Smith to merchandising from other iconic bookstores, such as Tokyo's Cow Books. It's a spectacle. She tells me more about Mise en Page. Le Bon Marché invited me to, as a guest, uh, they regularly uh, have like four or five guests during the year. And uh, um, I'm not an artist myself, and I try to think of what would make sense as a story for the exhibition. And very quickly talked about books because I published books and uh, I saw there was something in the air around books. So and definitely a tribute to bookshops because we broke together the match from bookshops like Strong from New York, Cow Books from Tokyo, etc. And you have, you know, you have a lot of experience, of course, with retail. You commanded Colette, a beloved shop by many. So tell us, have you some of the lessons from Colette in this installation in a way? Because it's quite impressive. There is a, an amazing installation by Jean Julien. I mean, this is Incredible. I mean, so uh, tell us a bit more. I mean, did you have an idea how you wanted the place to look like? It's definitely a continuity from uh, my Colette experience because, you know, the the motto for Colette when we opened uh, in 97 was uh, style, design, art, food. I like to think in a global way and we have all of this in this mise en page project. I worked with the artist Jean-Julien back in the days during Colette. We did some exhibitions, did some products, some packaging. And for this project at the Bon Marché, I immediately thought of him. I was surprised he didn't collaborate with them yet. He has done amazing, huge projects in Belgium, in Korea, in Japan, on some cool, smaller projects in Paris, but not yet something where he could really uh, express himself. So very quickly, that was Jean uh, will introduce his paper people, these characters he cut from a page and they are like ideas. They start to discover the world and start to learn to read and why other people uh, are dressed. So he starts in the windows to tell their story and there is this massive, huge installation in the center of the department store around the escalators, which are uh, designed by André Putman. And then at the second floor, you can see uh, Jean-Julien's world with his books, his brand uh, Nunu, his coffee he did in collaboration with Family First. That's a very important part of the exhibition. And, you know, Sarah, the, the products which you can buy at Mise en Page, they, it feels quite unique to the installation. You're not just selling products 
that you can buy anywhere else. So it must have took quite a long time actually to organize this project, right? Well, we really started to work on it in September after the summer holidays. We discussed before, but I think it's really from September, this opening now and February. So that was quite quick. And yes, there is lots of exclusive collaborations with fashion brands like Tom Brown, APC, Ami, Kitsune, with the design brands, with stationary brands. I'm very proud we have a Smithson and Montblanc. I think we have more than 100 partners and uh, so many exclusive items. That's incredible. And, and I want to talk about your publishing house, Just an Idea Books. You know, it plays a role uh, in Mise en Page as well, right? I, I believe there will be a few events with some of the authors. So Jean Gébien is at the second floor and at the first floor, you can find Just an Idea Books on France, which is dedicated to my publishing company. I started in 2021. It's really a portfolio of artists, a lot which has never had a book published before, but there is no rule. But uh, I really started when I discovered the work of Sho Shibuya, Nicole McLaughlin through Instagram and I asked them, do you have a book coming out? Because I was frustrated to just see their works uh, through my mobile screen. And with this project, I launched five new books, one with a paper people by Jean-Julien, probably the previous expression, one with the Japanese photographer FK, one with Katerina Jeb, an artist who uses scanography and she scanned uh, her favorite vintage books. One with an 87 years old photographer, reporter from Nice, Charles Bébert. And the last one is Glenn Jam, a very young, cool photographer from Los Angeles. So eclectic. It's so different creative talents, but I'm, yes, uh, very happy. And, and we have a few from my previous books as well. And I love the colors as well from the shelves because I'm all about baby blue at the moment. I don't know why. I think it looks so beautiful. It, likes, it looks like the sky. I don't know. I don't know. I think it looks quite playful. Playful, that's the right word, I would say. No, it, it was a great collaboration with the Bon Marché creative team with uh, Frédéric Baudenès, who had this idea. Jean-Julien gave his uh, palette of few colors as a base. And then uh, it was uh, this idea to, because there is four different areas in the department store, Two at the ground floor, one at the first floor, one at the second floor. And it's true that with this blue, it's easier for the visitors to understand what is uh, connected uh, together. Sarah, I'm sure you're asked this a lot, but do you miss the retail bit? Because, of course, you're a publisher, which is super exciting. But now you're using your kind of retail expertise as well. Do you miss that? Is that one of the reasons why you took this on board, this project? Before to be a publisher, I'm kind of consultant. Uh, I have this company called Just an Idea I launched after Colette, where I work with brands on collaborations on a retail experience, helping them to develop some uh, curating, some projects. So I'm very happy to be able to still keep a one foot, do you say that in English, yes, in yes. the retail scene and to be able to, to observe what's happening and also to have the distance to not be like I used to be with Colette to place orders and run the logistics. So it's perfect to be able to do this kind of temporary projects where I can uh, work on the curating and work um, to make sure it's it's a strong story making sense, and but to also have a, <laughs> a place with a team and the logistics. So I'm 
I don't miss retail because I have this connection and I, I regularly have some projects with uh, big or smaller yeah. shops. I want to talk about some of the objects. I mean, there's so many different products. I mean, it goes from uh, biscuits to even kitchen appliances, which somehow are related to book. That That's amazing. I wonder if you can tell us, I mean, of course, you're not going to tell all of them, but some of the things that you can actually find in Mise Page. So it's a huge, it's a very, like, it's a large scope. The, what you mentioned is from Ari Nourif, this designer, very talented, very prolific, because I have the books published, but I started to launch some book ends. I invited designers like Gabriela Noel, iPhone uh, from Japan, who is more a typograph. And Ari was like this a discussion, oh, if you will do book ends. His first idea, he gave immediately was books, a stack of books cut in half. And for this, I had to wait for um, this new printing process. And we have them, there are 15 crazy stack of books cut in half. And he also had this idea of the kitchen tools, like, uh, like the toaster, the pan, and they are original classic ones filled with concrete inside. So they are really very heavy. And we show them with a selection of cooking books by Luca Pronzato from We Are Ona. But we also have the French artist Ines Melia, who is doing books, sculptures, and beautiful, very poetic objects, like bookmark, looking like a match. So it's matchbook. We have uh, Alina Smart-Daman, this very, very uh, inspiring um, interior designer who uh, makes books. She's a real bibliophile. I, try, I invited mostly artists, contributors who I know actually read books and are, uh, love the, the world of books. And Alina Smardaman, she's, she's always reading. And she uh, did this table and this sculpture in Venice where she transformed books like stones nearly. Still in the design world, we have Jean-Guillaume Mathieu this uh, wood um, artist who works near Fontainebleau and created this little uh, fetish object characters. But so this is still at the, around my books. And down at the ground floor, we have some uh, bookshops. We have uh, with our merch products. We have uh, jewelry with alphabets. We have beauty. We have Diptyque who launched a um, candle smelling papier, uh, paper in avant-première. And we have uh, lots of collaboration, like Paul Smith did an exclusive uh, t-shirt with a box from his uh, studio. We have uh, Luniform who created a um, little pochette to match the Kindle from Amazon that you can put your own initials. And it goes on and on and on. I cannot. That's amazing. Uh, and one of my favorite things you pay, you're paying tribute to perhaps some of your favorite bookstores around the world, right? Uh, you mentioned that there's, you know, things from a bookstore in Tokyo, from New York. That's a lovely tribute. And it's also very interesting on why bookshop has to develop uh, products because uh, I think uh, from London Idea Books, it has been a real impact for them to have, yes, a great selection of vintage books. But I think the, the fact they sell a lot of caps on T-shirts is uh, something to consider in the business model of a bookshop nowadays. And I'm very happy we have uh, the iconic Shakespeare and Company from Paris. We have uh, OSA, we have, uh, and this bookshop has never 
sold their products outside from their walls. It's really not a wholesale business for them. So it was a challenge sometimes to create the distribution process, but I'm super happy. And I think we will have some talks and conversation during the exhibition. One is with three bookshops, Galingangi, OFR, and the Bookinist, you know, from the river along the Seine, to say what it means to be a bookseller today. And uh, Lola James Harper, this fragrance company, did, did an exclusive candle for us with the, the strand. So they had this discussion on what would be a candle smell for the... I am happy. The strand in New York, they have already a huge department of products, but it, they didn't have something related to the fragrance candle. So I'm happy we made this happen. And uh, So I was saying, compared to Colette, we have design, we have beauty, but we have food goes through the... Um, we have two coffee spots, one at the ground floor with Momus, which is a new place in Paris, Rue des Martyrs, and you can actually do your own coffee. It's really made with uh, this expert from Brazil. They serve the coffee in a little glass, and it's, it's, it's really something for purists. With Jean-Julien Space, we have the Café Nounou with Julien Femme from Family First, where they also have an amazing coffee with Pev, and it's another brand on matcha, etc. So... Yeah, it's a really a full uh, experience to visit. <laughs> it's a department store inside a department store, almost, if you think about it. Sarah, I'm just, just out of curiosity, because, you know, of course, we do a show here about magazines, and I love magazines too. Are you also a big fan of print magazines, or you're more focused uh, on books and art books? But I wonder if you have a favorite, or if you like magazines, what's your take on that? I love magazines and I'm very happy that there is all the time new magazine. We just launched part of Mise en Page, the first issue of Family. Is it called just Family or Family Style? Family I Style, it's... I think. Yes, I got That's a press release for that. Voilà. And, uh, and uh, we have the System magazine. I think they are always doing an amazing job and they have this incredible cover with Farrell shot by Jürgen Teller. And we invited L'Etiquette, which is this French magazine that I love, made by Marc Boger. And they have a T-shirt with Agnès B. And they did collaboration with uh, different brands already. And we will also have a conversation between magazines, between L'Etiquette and the exhibition magazine. And yes, I think it's so important for magazines to have their own voice. And what I used to do with Colette, to have this selection of amazing magazines that you cannot find everywhere, but when we opened in 97 at Colette, from day one, I had um, ID, Days Unconfused, The Face, Purple, Self-Service, because these independent magazines were so inspiring. And honestly, I think it was maybe less than, I don't know, five shops in Paris with no exaggeration who used to sell them. And now I'm very happy that you can find all kinds of independent cool new magazines everywhere and it shows there is a huge uh, interest for uh, all this and uh, there is one magazine HUBE she's so young and she has amazing partners from uh, David Lynch to Marina Abramovich and I'm impressed at the magazine yes with the energy from all these new uh, magazines Thank you very much Sarah I can't wait to visit Maison Page is at Le Bon Marché Rive Gauche till April 21st And now we stay in France. Monaco's Europe editor-at-large, Ed Stoker, recorded this monologue on the potential buyout of Paris Match by LVMH. 
It's not always easy to keep up with the brands in the LVMH stable. The French luxury behemoth owns household names such as Fendi, Celine and Bulgari, but they're only part of the story. While the company is famous for having a foothold in everything from watches to luxury travel, there's also a lesser-known side to the business, media. And it looks like this operation is growing. LVMH already owns Paris-focused tabloid Le Parisien and business news daily Les Echos. Now it is reportedly holding talks with publishing group Lagardère over the purchase of its storied weekly Paris Match for an undisclosed fee. The potential sale might not be a huge surprise to everyone. After all, LVMH's chairman and CEO Bernard Arnault has a long history with Lagardère. Nonetheless, it would mark a significant change in the media landscape. While the heyday of weeklies such as Paris Match might have passed, it's easy to see why LVMH would want a slice of a brand that conjures up a sense of nostalgia and images of sun-kissed high-society shenanigans. I can still remember flicking through its pages on childhood summer holidays in France. Its red, white and black logo is impossible to forget. Deep-pocketed benefactors stepping in to fund and potentially reinvigorate heritage titles is something to be applauded. It's certainly one way to secure the future of print media, an approach that has been pioneered by the likes of Jeff Bezos, who bought the Washington Post for $250 million, or 230 million euros, in 2013. But owners also need to ensure that they stay away from the news, and allow journalists to get on with their jobs. LVMH has been guilty of blurring the lines in the past. Staff at Les Echos went on strike last year over alleged editorial interference by its owner, and Le Parisien has also raised similar concerns about Bernard Arnault's involvement. Whether the deal goes through or not, LVMH should see the potential acquisition of Paris Match as a fresh opportunity to be decidedly hands-off. For Monocle, I'm Ed Stocker. Thank you very much, Ed. And remember, this piece was on the Monocle Minute this week. You can subscribe to the newsletter on monocle.com. And I also have to say, I've always been a fan of Paris Match. Long live that title. If you've been listening to Monocle Radio regularly, you might know that I am a huge fan of the Pet Shop Boys. When I found out about this book, I knew I had to speak with the editor of it. The book is called The Pet Shop Boys and the Political, a fascinating look on how the iconic duo played with queerness, culture, identity and society. It looks at their cultural and political impact as well. Here is my conversation with Bodie A. Ashton. Bodie A. Ashton, uh, welcome to Monocle Radio to talk about your new book that you edited, The Pet Shop Boys and the Political, Queerness, Culture, Identity and Society. My first question is going to be very simple, Bodie. Are you a fan? 
Of course. <laughs> How could you not, um, right? <laughs> exactly. And this was really one of those projects that came about that I really wanted to do something like this. It was in the middle of the pandemic that I came up with this idea. So, you know, we're all in lockdown. It's all really depressing. I'm a historian. I can't get into the archives and do my usual work. And, you know, I was just looking for something that would be nice to do that I would really enjoy. And then as it turns out, there are an awful lot of other colleagues around the world who were also fans and do history or sociology or film studies and so on, who were like, yes, we definitely want to be part of this as well. So yes, a very big fan. Because let's be honest, it's not every music act that has lyrics like Che Guevara and Debussy to a disco beat, right? I mean, that's so Petro Boys and they do it so effortlessly in a way. I mean, Chris Lowe says at one point that all of their music is basically uh, Russian history and bloody politics. You know, it's that. And Beyond that, it's just such, I want to say catchy music, but I don't mean it in just sort of the sense of you listen to it and you think, oh yeah, that's good. But it's music that sits in your mind and it sits there for quite a long time. So again, a lot of the people who've contributed to this book have also said that, you know, in their articles or books that they've written in the past, they've always tried to sneak in Pet Shop Boys references in there as well somehow. So this gave them an opportunity to really do that. And in the book, there are a lot of different essays, different times, different songs from the Pet Shop Boys. But I was wondering where they started. Was it something about the time the world was going through when, when the Pet Shop Boys basically started in, in the mid 80s, I believe? Was the world going through kind of a massive political change? Do you think that influenced that as well? And the reason why they're so political in a very chic way? Absolutely. So, I mean, they come about in the early to mid 80s, they first meet in the, the early 80s, then release their first album in the middle of the 1980s, uh, that being Please. And then they follow it up with Actually a little bit later. This is sort of the height of Margaret Thatcher's dominance and governance in Britain. And it's really the moment when neoliberalism takes to the stage in world politics. So what this really means is they're kind of, as we see with so much of their music, so much of it feels like a throwback. You know, you listen to Neil Tennant's very, very clear diction. He's very, very precise in how he pronounces his words. It's almost that throwback to that very, very polished English identity. But this is at a time where Britain is going through a period of sort of delegitimization at home and abroad. The empire has fallen apart. The Commonwealth is an odd replacement. Britain has sort of lost its way on the world stage. And here come these two guys to make music at a time when London is quite destitute. There are the other great cities of Britain that are also destitute. There's the tightening of belts. There's effectively being told, as Thatcher does, that there's no such thing as a society. And here come these two men to make music effectively about society and community and what this means to them and what this means to their audiences. So from the very, very beginning, it's always political. And what's fascinating about them, yes, you're right. I mean, they are very British in, in, their, in their own way and, and the music they do. But they talk about world politics. I mean, even take Go West, for example. That's clearly talking about something even bigger than the UK, right? Yeah, so there's very much the feeling throughout their entire discography, and it only becomes clearer quite as they, they go on in their careers. You know, the most recent album, 
hotspot is effectively a love letter to the European Union. And as we go backwards, we see this sort of interconnectivity. So, you know, we have this idea that comes through all of their discography, that everything here is connected, that there is this huge community, that they are trying to reach people all over the world from all different backgrounds. And they, they really have something to say in that sense, which is also shown by the fact that they have such huge fan bases in places across the world, you know, obviously Britain. Certainly over here in Germany, they're very popular, but they're hugely popular in, say, Japan or Brazil. They have this, I don't want to say universality, but certainly this sort of appeal that does appeal to all of these audiences all over the world from all different ways of life. Was there a song that started their politicization or, or because this came from the beginning, from the earlier hits as well. I mean, there's so many examples here, you know, it's a sin, but perhaps that's not one of the first, but was there a song that was like, okay, those guys, they are going to be a little bit political. Look, really, from the very beginning, I mean, you can make the argument that West End Girls is a very political song. Suburbia most definitely is. Suburbia, of course, is all about this, this fragmentation of society and what it means to be pushed to the margins. This is all happening in the context of, say, the Brixton and Toxteth riots. So again, from the very, very early moments of their careers, they're making music that you know, while one of my contributors points out in the book, you know, you'll never find the word neoliberalism in any of their lyrics, but they're clearly from the very beginning providing critiques of this sort of new neoliberal socioeconomic and political position. Interesting you say that it perhaps is not explicitly said in the lyrics, but even let's talk about, you know, queerness. You know, from my understanding, I don't think, especially New Tenant, didn't came out until the 90s, for example. But it was so clear that their songs had, you know, a queer connotation. They spoke about HIV as well. They're beautiful songs like Being Boring. What do you have to say about how they used the fact that, you know, that they were queer, but perhaps at a time where it was not very clear, you couldn't be as open uh, as today, for example? Well, this I find to be one of the most fascinating aspects of their work because a lot of what they do very early in their career is what we would term queer coding. So effectively, there are definitely queer motifs in their work that you won't necessarily recognize until you're looking for them, which really means unless you're part of that community, you might not recognize it for what it is. I think the best example of this, you mentioned It's a Sin. Mm -hmm. It's a Sin is so obvious to us. You know, we take it as being a gay anthem. And how could it not be? Because really, you know, this is a song about someone coming of age, someone recognizing, in this case, their homosexuality, that, you know, it's against what they had learned at school. Let's not forget that Neil Tennant went to a Catholic school. So, you know, this is very much that sort of personal, but also very generally queer coming out story. But we only really know that because this is a song that was produced way back in the 80s. We've had three and a half decades worth of it then being performed, that it's been adapted, that we've seen, you know, the duet between Ollie Alexander and Sir Elton John, who, of course, themselves are queer icons. There's all of this queerness attached to it. And Russell T. Davies' series, It's a Sin, obviously. So this seems really obvious to us. But at the time that it was released, there were audiences who didn't realize. So 
you had, for example, the Salvation Army wrote about this in their magazine. And their take on it was, isn't this fantastic that they're these two young men who take the idea of sin seriously in this day and age? They <laughs> did not see this clear subtext to it. And many conservative, I mean, correct, you know, you're talking about the fan bases, Japan, Brazil, which I'm from is very true. But I think they were quite big in, in the Soviet countries as well, which were also very conservative, but they managed to kind of reach the people that perhaps wouldn't be the typical, you know, liberal, as, as you might say. There's something that's, I think, really important to see in Pet Shop Boys music and to hear in Pet Shop Boys music. And it is the fact that it's meant to be broadly applicable to a wider population. So, you know, we talk here in the book quite a bit about queer motifs and queerness and queer identity and all of this. And I think on the blurb, I refer to them as the archetypal gay band, which has actually had, I've noticed a little bit from people who've been talking about the book online. A few people have responded with like, well, I wouldn't think of them as a gay band, which is interesting because it seems clear to us. And yet at the same time, Neil Tennant himself has been quite outspoken about the idea that, you know, he didn't want to get pigeonholed. This was one of the reasons why he didn't want to publicly come out until he did in an interview in 1994. His real worry was that he'd cease being pop star Neil Tennant and would become gay pop star Neil Tennant, such that he'd then just sort of be put into this one pigeonhole. And in fact, as he then speaks about later when they released the next album after that bilingual, that's pretty much what happened. You know, they went to Atlantic Records and Atlantic Records sent them to the gay marketing department, which was basically the point there where he thought, right, this, it's over now. But obviously, of course, there have always been huge fans of the Pet Shop Boys who themselves are not gay or queer in whichever way and have just simply loved the music and have found something in that as well and loved the performance and so on. So it doesn't really surprise me to a huge extent that, you know, you do have lots of fans of the Pet Shop Boys who themselves aren't queer, who themselves are maybe a little bit more conservative in a social setting because the music is really good. It is really good. I mean, it's fantastic. I don't know. They make me cry. They, it, it, I don't know how. It, it's fantastic. As you can see, I'm also a big fan. And one thing that I find it funny almost, you talk about neoliberalism. There's a song, uh, Opportunities, you know, let's make lots of money. And I do think some people will notice the criticism there, but I'm not sure everybody will get it. And somebody say, you know, it's just a great anthem. And they, they might think, yeah, let's make lots of money. <laughs> yeah. One of the reasons why I think it's fascinating to look at Pet Shop Boys like this is because also, as we've already said, you know, big fan base in the UK, big fan base in Germany, in Japan, in Brazil, in many other places. It's in the United States that they've kind of had some trouble. And some of that has also come from the fact that the music that they make is very clearly for some audiences at least, very clearly meant to be sort of quite sarcastic. They've been accused of being deeply ironic. They're maybe a little bit less than that uh, reputation would suggest, but certainly there's this cutting criticism in there. So Opportunities is, is a great example. Shopping from Actually 
you know, that's a great song. It's the first song I actually ever learned the lyrics to. I was like four years old or something like that. S-H-O-P-P-I-N-G. I love it. Yeah. So forget Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. It was shopping, which makes sense. I do lots of retail therapy. But, you know, this is this is actually the point. Some audiences, particularly in the United States, sort of took this at its word as being, you know, this is this is a song about how good shopping is. <laughs> and it's, no, it's it's a song about effectively how we're all being shopped. Effectively, you know, we're we're having the way we live sold from underneath us. But that sort of passed by a number of audiences, such that you know, again, you mentioned opportunities. That is such a fantastic criticism of this consumerist capitalism that came to the fore in particularly in the 1980s. But it's quite often taken as being this, you know, very open-faced capitalist anthem, which is wild to many, in many ways. And they're still at it. I mean, you mentioned Hotspot there, which was a love letter to the European Union. There were a lot of examples in the 2000s as well. I think I'm with Stupid, perhaps. That was kind of a, a little critique. So, I mean, and, and they're still producing amazing music, right? I don't see them so much as a legacy act, although some might do, but... I think they're still creating great content out there, right? Absolutely. I mean, they've just announced their new album, which will be out in April, I think. They've just released their new single as well, and it's B-sides. The B-sides of Pet Shop Boys singles are always amazing. I always find them some of the most interesting work. And of course, they, they continue to be very outspoken in their politics. So especially given what's been happening, of course, with regards to Ukraine and Russia, They've been outspoken opponents of Vladimir Putin. They released a song a couple of years ago called Living in the Past, which is meant to be sung from the perspective of Vladimir Putin as being, you know, this testosterone-laden wannabe Joseph Stalin. You'd still get this, this biting commentary. They have an EP they released back in 2019, which criticizes social media and Donald Trump. So they're, they're very definitely still at it. They have this massive legacy, but you're right. They're building on that legacy all the time. And I'm very glad someone edited a book about them because it's hard to say. I don't know if they're underrated because, you know, they are very famous. They're very popular. But I think somebody needed to write about them as well. And I think we found you, Bodhi. That's very kind. <laughs> definitely was a labor of love. It was, as I say, something that started as a pandemic passion project. And I'm just glad to have found all of these wonderful contributors, some of whom I knew already and some of whom I met as a result of this project. Most of us haven't actually met in person yet. And yet we got to have all of these really interesting conversations and exchanges about this. And almost to a person, every one of those contributors had something to say along the lines of, I've been waiting for a book like this for a long time. So it really just needed someone to, to actually go ahead and say, let's put a book together. But it seems so obvious because they have such a long career. You know, they have a career that spans 40 years and they've been making music across five decades, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and now in the 2020s. We look at music and literature and film and so on, and we always are looking for how they reflect their time and how they drive their times as well. And sometimes for the things that we sort of sometimes dismissively call pop music or pop culture, 
we very often dismiss that as being important, but all of us were sort of like, well, no, this is important. You know, it is, it is great music, but there's also something important here to say, to talk about the times that we're in. And most importantly, I think they approved about your book. I think they they posted something, you know, they said it could be interesting. (laughs) They did. Look, I saw that when one of my contributors, Abby Weisdorf, she pointed it out to me and I read it as being, you know, a somewhat academic book could be interesting. And I think every single one of us has decided that we want to get somewhat academic tattooed somewhere on us. (laughs) It would also be a great pull quote for the cover. But yes, it was it was certainly a surprise. I didn't expect that this would suddenly turn up on, up on their social media accounts or on their website, but it did. And I'm really, really grateful to that. And I, I hope that if Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe get an opportunity to pick up a copy of the book, I hope that they might approve of it. I think they will. Listen, Bodhi, a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bodhi. And The Petro Boys and the Political is out now, published by Bloomsbury Publishing. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, email me, fernando, at fbandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can always listen again at monaco.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. It's goodbye from me. Thank you.